Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And I'm sorry to inform you, John, that you're going to have to host the podcast solo this week. Our bosses at US Bets have put in place a new load management policy. <laughs> they don't want us to burn out. They want our vocal cords to make it until sweeps month. Uh, so I'm riding the pine this week in street clothes. Take it away, John. Uh, whoa there, Eric. Um, I think our fans pay good money to hear both of us. Um, you know, wait, I, I never did look into the business side. Do, do we make money on this thing? I, I don't know. I, I should probably have asked, but um, uh, you're probably teasing about the NBA superstars being yes. what uh, in hockey is called a healthy scratch. Um, yes. yeah, I, I not only see it as desperately lame, but I, I can't believe there isn't more fan uproar. But you know, look, if fans are foolish enough to blow $100 or more per game ticket and then put up with a player just sitting out just because he, you know, well, I guess it's true about a fool and his money being soon parted. So um, <laughs> good luck to them. And uh, But for us, I say we soldier on, Eric, and let's drink lots of herbal tea. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and honestly, my vocal cords couldn't possibly be uh, get worn down any worse than they were in Vegas a few weeks ago. So, That's true. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, no, uh, to clarify, uh, the people listening do not have to pay for the podcast, regardless okay. of whether it is or is not uh, profitable. Uh, and actually, and, and I said something that uh, I don't think has any basis in reality. I referenced sweeps month. I don't think there's a <laughs> podcast sweeps period, as far as I know. Uh, but I, on the uh, on the load management front, uh, I feel like Greg Popovich isn't getting his due as the godfather of load management. You know, they called it, like you said, healthy scratch or DNP rest at the time. But Pop really invented this in basketball. And now, now you just can't escape that term, load management. It's funny how things like that just catch on all of a sudden. Yeah, Greg goes back long enough to where I was covering the NBA. And um, he's a really, really annoying kind of <laughs> militaristic type person. And he's worshipped by uh, NBA fans. He's obviously one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. Nobody's disputing that. But he's really kind of a um, – difficult person in real life but <laughs> yeah, but I, a, I won't go any further well yeah as anyone who's ever seen anyone attempt a sideline interview with him knows he has that side at the very least i actually don't mind him not liking the sideline interviews i mean that that is kind of stupid and so <laughs> i'm good with that i, I kind of like when he does that but right but in, you in, can... in a real civilized setting you know 15 minutes after a game you're standing in front of a podium and there's five reporters there you know you can ask you can answer a question without being uh difficult <laughs> well that's how i feel about the sideline interviews too it's like he's 
make it, it you know this is the person's job it, th- this is what they have to do you don't have to make them feel like crap for needing to ask you a quick question or two i don't know it's it can be funny sometimes but i think it's uh quite rude at the same time but well uh, that's kind of his thing now so and i give him credit I, the nba fans love him they think it's uh great so yeah. good for him all right uh speaking of fans loving uh people uh thank you to everyone out there for joining us for episode number 65 of gamble on because clearly you love us the same way the NBA fans love pop. Um, if you missed any of our previous 64 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud and on iTunes at the Apple Podcast app. And please don't practice load management when it comes to taking a few seconds to give us a five-star review in the app. <laughs> I like that, Eric. And uh, yeah, coming up a little later on the show, we'll be joined by Blaine Grayboys, the CEO of GameCo. That's the company pioneering skill-based video game gambling. Um, it's a form of gaming quite a few of our listeners might be unfamiliar with, but it's pretty fascinating, really. And Blaine is going to give us a scoop on what states have it, what games are popular, and where it's all heading. But uh, first, it's been yet another busy week in the world of gambling, uh, particularly for a couple of former Gamble On guests, by the way. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. As John just mentioned, a couple of our podcast guests have been in the news, and we start with the guest on our most downloaded episode ever, James Holzhauer. Uh, Jeopardy James, the Las Vegas-based professional sports better who shattered records during his 32-game winning streak in the spring, won his semifinal match in the Tournament of Champions that aired Tuesday, uh, one day after the only player ever to defeat Holzhauer, Chicago librarian Emma Betcher, won her semifinal. That means in the two-day finals, which air tonight and tomorrow night, we get the rematch. We get to find out if the first time was a fluke or if Emma has James's number. And we can't ignore Francois Barkham, an 11th grade physics teacher from New Paltz, New York, who <laughs> won Wednesday's semifinal and will try to play rematch narrative spoiler. Uh, so uh, two questions, John. How confident are you that James will win the $250,000 top prize? And how happy are you to have Jeopardy James back in your life? Well, first, I have to mention, I've been to New Paltz, New York. Uh, okay. it's, off the, it's off the New York State Thruway on the way to Albany and beyond, although why you would go any further, I don't know, but you could. <laughs> uh, there's a road that goes all the way to, I don't know, Canada, I think. Um, now, they have a microbrewery there in New Paltz. Uh, it's got one of those goofy names like the Angry Otter, the Teed-Off Terrapin, the Pissed-Off Parrot, like something like that. <laughs> something <laughs> something alliterative. Whatever. Yeah, it, it, there's an animal and there's a there's an emotion involved, so it, right. it's pretty good, actually. Okay. Um, uh, second, you know, James is a lock, um, if only because he knows he can parlay that into a repeat performance on our podcast, because you know, we don't we don't settle for runner-ups as guests. I mean, not unless our first choices don't come through anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, funny that you say that, because our next news story will involve uh, a runner-up of sorts who was a guest. But um, yeah, um, in terms of, uh, you know, watching Jeopardy! James again, and, uh, you know, as fun as this is to see him going for this title... I'm glad that it's a limited two-week run against top opposition. I don't really need to see him running roughshod over average contestants for a month Mm. or two ever again. Um, But it's been interesting to see him still winning comfortably so far against the best players from the past year. Um, And, uh, you know, I I have a sense of how good Emma Betcher is, which is to say she's outstanding, but she needed to play a perfect game with perfect luck to beat James. Uh, I, I feel he's a, a notch better than her at Jeopardy. And I watched Francois play on Wednesday. That was the first time I saw him. 
I just don't see him hanging with James. Um, in the story that I wrote uh, this week, I set fictional odds of minus twelve hundred if you wanted to back James <laughs> wow. to win. Sounds like uh, if, if given the choice between betting him at those odds or betting one of the other two at about plus six hundred or plus eight hundred, you you would lean toward James or or at or at odds like that, is it just to stay away? No, I, I'm still going James. I mean, he's actually so normal that he lost that game not because he didn't care, but because he didn't obsess you know i mean hmm. if he wins he wins if he doesn't he doesn't he's got a good life he's got a good family it's all good and so uh i think he'll be able to focus just on you know one one particular uh event and win and then he can be done with it forever i think yeah yeah and i it's, I, I have a friend who was on jeopardy and uh, also won a bunch of money on pyramid a couple of years ago but uh he loves sports betting um and so he read my article and uh, said he would take james at minus 1200 in a heartbeat yeah. so uh, yeah. yep everyone's on the same page there i guess yep all right now on to the other gamble on guest who's been in the news at this time last week daniel negranu thought he was the world series of poker player of the year Turns out he isn't. Last Friday, the WSOP announced that they've made an error in entering tournament results. A Russian poker journalist named Alex Alensky had discovered that Negranu had been accidentally awarded points over the summer for an event he didn't cash in. Those points were taken away, and without them, Negranu finished third, and Robert Campbell is, in fact, the WSOP Player of the Year. Negranu has been nothing but gracious about it, congratulating Campbell and saying the WSOP got it right. But he has also noted that he would have played differently in some of the recent WSOP Europe events if he knew he was the chaser, not the chasee. My personal opinion is that there are always flaws with these points-based systems they've tried over the years. And I dislike the fact that Negranu could have won Player of the Year without winning a single bracelet. So in a sense, justice was served when the award instead went to Campbell, who won two bracelets this summer. Uh, unfortunately, Gamble On can no longer take credit for propelling Negranu to the <laughs> award, as I saw you tried to do on Twitter. Uh, John, uh, what are your thoughts on this story? And was there any alternative way the WSOP could have handled this once the error was discovered? Well, I think the only thing better than a Russian journalist discovering this would have been a Ukrainian uh, <laughs> journalist discovering this. But let's go away from that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, uh, oddly enough, you know, something similar happened on the PGA Tour a couple of years ago. Uh, Englishman Ian Poulter appeared to have fallen just short of earning exempt status for the following year. Then a fellow player realized that a change in the tour rules about medical exemptions had led to like an increase inaccurate point listing so both players wind up being exempt um so poulter owes that guy at least oh i don't million dollars or so hmm. um but i agree with you here about daniel in spite of uh, his gamble on nation membership uh he probably <laughs> could not be winning player of the year if he had not won a bracelet um they should fix that uh i think it might have been nice to name both of them winners you know hmm. uh, this is a little before your time but the 1979 nl mvp vote in baseball supposedly wound up at a tie between willie stargill and keith hernandez at 200 mm-hmm. something points apiece um I think it was uh, – pardon me if I don't believe that improbability, um, but I'm okay with the result. Sarge was kind of a sentimental, you know, we are family, fun favorite, and Hernandez was the sort of the perfect uh, player with St. Louis, and uh, they both deserved it in their own way, and they both won, and I don't – like I said, uh, it's a tie. I don't know. So let's make this one a tie. That's what I would have wanted. Yeah, that, that could have been an option to let Negranu keep his award, but also give uh, Campbell an award, although then uh, I wonder how the, the guy – 
in the middle who officially finished second place, Sean Deeb, who is known to be a very vocal complainer, uh, how, how he would have felt about that. Um, but uh, it's, I, what, it is true that 1979 was before my time as a baseball fan, but baseball stat nerd that I was as a kid in the 80s, I did know uh, who, who tied for the award in 79. Um, and of course, Keith Hernandez, uh, his legacy will always be starring in the greatest episode of Seinfeld ever, in my opinion. Um, I can't say enough positive things uh, about how Negreanu has handled this because he has every right to feel wronged and robbed, but he's a multimillionaire who seems to appreciate the life he has. And he uh, basically said he was on a podcast and he said, look, I, I got the thrill of thinking I'd won and that's what I was pursuing it for. And this doesn't change that experience for me. And, uh, and he's just gone on to congratulate Campbell, who is not a household name and has more to gain in credibility from being player of the year than Negreanu does. So uh, good for Negreanu for the, for the way he has handled this whole mess, frankly. Wait, wait, my takeaway is you're saying there are other gambling podcasts that he puts on. <laughs> it's in fact, one that he, that he co-hosts. Uh, uh, okay, so, I guess so. yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll let him slide. Yeah. He's, not, he's not allowed to guest on any podcast, but ours, no. but if he if he hosts his own, that's okay. Yes, that's okay. <laughs> okay, all right, I'm with you on that. All right, uh, there are no former Gamble On guests implicated in our final news story this week. Uh, we got sports betting revenue numbers from two notable states in the past week, and they to- tell two very different stories. In Indiana, the first partial month of mobile sports betting saw $91.7 million of betting handle, up from just $35 million the month before, and 52% of that handle came online. DraftKings Sportsbook is the dominant force in the state for now, generating $39.4 million in handle, way ahead of Bet Rivers at $6.3 million and FanDuel, which launched late in the month, at $2.4 million. But all in all, sports betting is taking off in Indiana. That is not the case in New York. Uh, there is no mobile stat betting in New York State, only retail betting at four casinos far outside the city. And their total sportsbook revenue for October was a mere $2.2 million, which is about 6% of what neighboring New Jersey's retail books did in their most recently reported month. The takeaways pretty much write themselves. Uh, But, John, you want to take this opportunity to vent about how much money New York is leaving on the table by not allowing mobile betting? Well, Eric, you know, first off, it doesn't bother me personally that New York State doesn't allow for mobile sports betting. Um, to the extent that I care at all, I can't ignore the modest boost of the Jersey Treasury from those New Yorkers betting legally in my state instead. So I got a little bit of a uh, financial benefit, I suppose. But um, but the Meadowlands taking it perhaps triple the amount of New York money compared to Resorts World Catskills, uh, which is the nearest legal place to bet in New York, um, suggests that Empire Staters aren't really digging that state pride angle, which uh, I'm not surprised at. Um, as for Indiana, there were That'll be a good test to see how Midwesterners wager compared to Northeasterners. Um, Mm. I don't think they'll keep up to us per capita, but um, the numbers will tell the story. Yeah. I mean, the the retail versus mobile comparison is just so stark and so obvious, and we've been talking about it ever since the numbers in New Jersey started – reaching, you know, 80% plus uh, coming coming via mobile. In, in a perfect world, you'll have both retail and mobile uh, in, in every state because, as you and several of our past guests have said, some people do prefer to bet in person at the sports book. Uh, they just don't care for doing it on their phones or their computers. So it, it's good to have both options. Um, and so that means what's coming in Tennessee, uh, online only with no casinos, that's not perfect. Uh, but clearly, if you could only have one or the other, 
you want mobile. New York is just getting so little out of this, and uh, it sucks for New Yorkers who want to bet, uh, you know, and unless they live really close to one of those casinos or really close to New Jersey, basically legal sports betting has not come to their state uh, in any impactful way. Uh, and if they were betting offshore with a bookie before, they assuredly still are and still will be for a while. Yes, and I hear from pretty much all of them on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. As a father of a 10-year-old boy, I am quite familiar with video games. As a writer, editor, and podcaster for usbets.com, I am quite familiar with the casino industry. That said, I have a lot to learn about the intersection between these two worlds. Here now to help explain it all is Blaine Grayboys, the CEO of Gameco, the first company bringing skill-based video game gambling to the casino floor. Blaine, welcome to Gamble On. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Uh, so... You've been trying to crack the code for a number of years of getting millennials into casinos by offering video game gambling, games based partly on skill, such as shooting baskets or, or shooting zombies. Uh, for those who are totally unfamiliar, can you give the quick explanation of how these games work and where both the skill and the luck come in? And what are the biggest surprises you've seen so far in rolling out VGMs for play in casinos? Wow, that's a lot to cover. Thank you. Uh, so as you mentioned, we were the first company to bring video games to the casino. We launched the first video game gambling machines or VGM in November 2016. And we've learned an enormous amount since then. Just to touch on the question of how the games work and the balance between chance and skill, we make a number of different kinds of games. So we make games that are predominantly chance are a balance or mix of chance and skill and we also make games that are pure skill all of these games go into the casino under existing regulations that support slot machines and electronic poker and that was really one of the big strategies we had at gameco was using existing technologies and regulations so that we could place these games as broadly as possible. So to give an example of uh, each of those three types of games, we have a game called Mystery of the Secret Temple. It's a match three game, very much like a casual Candy Crush or Bejeweled style game. Hmm. In that game, you're making a bet every time you match three or more of the same symbols. The bet amounts are very similar to slot machines. So maybe anywhere from 50 cents to $5. We find that our average bet is in the range of $1.50 to $2. And when you make that bet matching three or more symbols, a random number generator or RNG decides how much that match is worth. And it might be worth cash or it might be worth what we call tokens, which is an in-game economy that we've created that provide enhancements, power-ups, and boosters in the game. So that type of game is predominantly chance, but provides a level of interactivity, agency, progress, completion, and just fun that often isn't found in slot machines for our audiences. Using a different example, you touched on uh, sports games. We have a great game called Nothing But Net 2. 
It's one of the games we have out now in Nevada on our technical field trial. And in that game, when you place a bet by catching the ball, the random number generator decides how much that shot is worth. And then it's up to your skill and only your skill to make the basket and win the amount that's available. What's really interesting about that type of game is because of the slot regulation, we have to assume that every player plays perfectly, but they actually don't. And we've created a technology called Gamer's Edge where we use the money that is not won in one shot or one bet to award higher payouts or more frequent payouts in future bets. So that game is balancing chance and skill. The skill portion completely defines whether you win the available uh, cash payout, but then Gamer's Edge enhances that cash payout based on your skill. Okay. And then finally, we're just getting ready to launch our multiplayer arena. This is the first in our line of what we call casino esports products. And that takes our single player games and makes them multiplayer, either head to head or bracketed tournaments. And in that case, the games are pure skill. The three of us might be playing a game head to head, winner takes the pot, house takes a rake, much like a poker tournament. Or in a bracketed tournament, it, it's more like an esports event where players or teams are competing against each other in brackets and the winning team takes the prize and maybe there's a second and third place prize as well. All right. You know, Blaine, though, we go back to 2016 on this uh, when you first put your machines in Atlantic City and uh, it was an interesting uh, experiment for sure. And one thing I recall about you is that um, you were very open to uh, seeing what the market wants, you know, not just picking two games and people either like it or they don't and you you, you sink or swim. You were just going to go, what is the audience telling you? So so based on a couple of years of this, you know, what have you found uh, uh, any types of games that either are very popular or were surprisingly unpopular? You know, what uh, what is the market telling you about what, what they really want? Well, I really appreciate that question because it is part of the culture and strategy at GameCo to be very, very open to feedback and from all stakeholders, the casinos, the players. So a few examples jumped to mind. The first game we launched was a game called Danger Arena. We knew it wasn't perfect, but we knew we weren't going to learn any more in the lab. And we needed to get the game out to real players. So I'll tell you, within the first half hour of the game on the floor, two things that we learned was this is definitely going to appeal to younger audiences, but not exclusively. The other thing that we learned very quickly was we had originally envisioned that all of our games would have a game console style controller and within the first half hour again we knew that wasn't viable that all players weren't going to be comfortable with that type of input device so those were two immediate uh learnings that we had within the the first half hour of the game and we've yeah. had dozens since then another really interesting one is what we call the win nothing problem so if you think about a slot machine, about 60% of all spins, typically even more, you win nothing. So you bet 80 cents, you spin the reels, and you get nothing. But in our games, we find that that's very dissatisfying to a player who's, let's say, done the skill challenge you've asked them to do, you know, 
take out a robot, make a basket, match three, and to get nothing. So that's where we developed our token economy in the game so that you're always winning something, even if it's not cash. Yeah. Uh, one follow-up on that, Blaine. I remember uh, uh, you had the games out kind of in the middle of a casino floor with the idea of almost like, uh, I think, uh, you know, kind of a crap style, uh, you know, movie uh, element where one person is doing really well and then everybody follows in and, and kind of joins in a communal experience. I think if I recall correctly, you found that a lot of people didn't want to feel that sort of pressure. And so you were a little bit better off, you know, putting the game off to the side so the person can learn on their own without any kind of audience. Um, has that changed over time? Or? That's a really interesting point. So what we find is that there's a really intricate balance between what we would call discovery and occupancy. So people need to know where the games are, discovery. But what we also find is, for example, our games are often deployed in pods of three or four, and if one is more exposed than the others, it will often perform a little bit worse from a revenue standpoint. And when we ask players, they specifically say, well, I don't want to be embarrassed if I don't do well. Hmm. And that's really the opposite of slot machines. So one of the things we're starting to do with our multiplayer arena is actually deploy it with architecture. And that solves both problems. It lets us define an area on the floor through a a very uh, attractive piece of architecture that shows that this is a different kind of game, but also provide a degree of privacy to the players themselves without being on a, a crowded floor. Hmm. All right. Well, well, John mentioned uh, seeing you uh, showing the, these uh, games off in Atlantic City. So I, I know that they're in uh, the state of New Jersey. Uh, which other states have casinos that are currently offering your games? And, and are there any particular markets that are proving to be more promising than others? So uh, we have games currently in Mississippi, Colorado, Nevada, and California, getting ready to expand into a number of other tribal and commercial jurisdictions in the U.S., getting ready to launch a handful of provinces in Canada as well. And so in answer to your question of, you know, where do things perform best, it also has a lot to do with the games. And it also has a lot to do with how you measure success. So one of the deployments that we're most excited about, we have the sports games at the link in uh, Nevada on the Strip. This is a really innovative venue that Caesars has built. It's part of their Casino of the Future initiative. And it looks very different from the regular casino our games are right next to the sports book. They're attracting the right audience for our games. And in terms of who that audience is, our typical player is a 30-year-old male across all of our games. But then take the more casual games like Riches of the Golden Dragon or Mystery of the Secret Temple. These games perform really well with slot audiences. So the typical customer there is a 60-year-old female. So tribal jurisdictions like Mississippi or California or Oklahoma, that's the audience they're attracting. And that's one of the things we're trying to do at GameCo is offer a wide range of games in our library that allow operators the ability to program their floor for the customers they have now and the customers they want to attract. And I just want to touch on something you said early on, which is having our games attract the younger audience. And that's a really interesting challenge. 
they need to know the games are there to attract them. And so that's why we work really actively with our casino partners. We're not a direct-to-consumer marketing company, so we need to work with our casino partners to make sure they're marketing the games to new audiences that might not be in their current loyalty program. And that's a benefit to the operator because they're adding new younger people to their loyalty program who are going to be lifetime value customers for them. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, Blaine, just a few years ago, we we're talking about millennials, um, and I, I, I appreciate your your uh, your goal of attracting a, a wider range audience. Why, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't anybody? But, um, you know, my personal focus group of millennials is my 10 nephews and nieces. They're aged 27 <laughs> to 33, the 10 of them. Um, it suggests that, you know, 30-year-olds, some of them are finding 22-year-olds now to be kind of a different breed from them, from the way they've grown up. And I wonder if your research has shown any differential between those groups. And if so, is that complicated or, or even simplified your marketing strategy? Because we used to think, oh, millennials are one thing. And now I'm kind of hearing anecdotally that um, the next generation is a little bit different. And uh, how does that impact uh, how you market these games? So I, I totally agree with that. Generations are moving very quickly mm. and we're seeing a lot of differences between them. And I think this also touches into the esoteric question of will these generations grow up to play slot machines in traditional mm. casino games at the same rate? as previous generations? I think the answer to that is we don't know. Certainly slot machines are never going to go away. But what we are seeing is that our games are monetizing audiences that slot machines and even table games are not monetizing today. So to give you an example, we presented a panel at G2E. 58% of money spent on our games is from 20 to 49 year olds. Compare that to only 12% of money spent on slot machines from the same ages. Hmm. But what we are finding when you speak to, let's say the difference between a uh, you know, 45 year old, I'm 46, so I'm Gen X, a 30 year old and a 22 year old is definitely a different interest in the types of games. So. What we find for, let's say, the Gen X audience is a real interest in the nostalgia of games that they grew up with. So a great example of that, we're about to launch Soul Calibur Casino Edition, one of the most popular fighting games of all time. And I would say typically when people come up and play the game, the folks that enjoy that the most are in their 40s because we grew up playing that game. I think in the 30s, you see a lot of interest in a wide range of what we would call mid-core games, sports games in particular. And then when you drift down into the younger, I'll give you a great example. We have a partnership ready to launch Steve Aoki's Neon Dream. It includes music from his Dimmock label, and I think that really appeals to a younger audience. All right. Uh, well, last thing that I, I want to hit on here, Blaine, a, a little bit of a different topic, but w one bit of recent news that I, I'd love to get your take on. Uh, last week, New Jersey allowed betting on esports for the first time. Um, is this something that you see spreading and taking hold in the U.S.? And do you see any reason not to allow betting on esports the same way that you would more traditional sports? So I was really excited about that. Though, uh, I'd like to point out some of the reporting was a little off. Hmm. They mentioned it as the first bet on League of Legends. In fact, 
first bet on League of Legends happened in Nevada, the downtown Grand with William Hill a few years ago. It's an area that we're very interested in at GameCo. We will be launching our own esports book betting products in 2020, early in the year. We see that expanding very quickly. I see no reason not to allow it under existing sports betting. However, I do think there's one really important difference that has to be addressed when you're taking a book bet on esports, and that's integrity. So if you think about traditional sports and the athletes getting paid millions of dollars, they are not going to cheat or match fix to make a couple of thousand dollars on a bet. Right. But in esports, the average salary is three, five thousand dollars a month. And it does create some integrity challenges. There are some great organizations like ESIC, the Esports Integrity Coalition, that are taking real active, proactive steps to monitor these events. And so I would just say, as we expand esports book betting, having an integrity partner is key to make sure that we don't get into a space where there's cheating or match fixing happening. The other thing that I think is really interesting just to touch on, because it was in one of your previous episodes, is how online casino is trailing very quickly behind sports betting with the PASPA repeal. And that's something we're really excited about as well. Gameco is starting to get into iGaming and real money gambling online and mobile. And we see sports betting, both traditional and esports, as paving the way for that. All right. Yeah. Sounds like you are uh, on the cutting edge and uh, the the timing of just where the industry is going right now uh, uh, hits, hits you in a lot of your sweet spots and uh, you hit it in a lot of uh, its sweet spots. Uh, it seems like there's huge potential for growth with all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's going to be an exciting few years ahead. Yeah. All right. Fascinating stuff. It's been great talking to you, Blaine. Uh, th- thanks so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Excellent. Thank you both for having me on. Really excited. Take All care. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Blaine. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the Fast Five shortly. But first, we update our betting bankroll. And it was a positive week overall. Although I'm starting to get concerned about my partner and his college football bets. Uh, John, I'm sorry to say it was an 0-2 week for you. Neither Louisville nor Maryland covered, and we were lucky not to be using points betting this time. Uh, So that was a loss of $220 combined. However, the Thursday night player prop bet hit again. That makes seven in a row as Hunter Renfro with a W uh, went over 27 and a half yards to win us 100 bucks. And my money line bet on Seattle that I didn't quite believe in, but I liked the plus 230 price. Well, we got there as time expired in overtime. Good for a $230 profit. <laughs> yeah, uh, that means we won $110 this week putting us $519 ahead overall. We also have $2,427 on holding futures bets. So that leaves us with $8,092 available to bet this week. And I'm up first and let's get right to it. The nation needs to know which player prop to pick in the Thursday night football game. Uh, It's Cleveland and Pittsburgh. And I considered a few options here. I flirted with over four and a half catches for Jarvis Landry. That seems like a lock. But it's priced at minus 140, which, you know, is still 
a price worth betting, but it just felt like a cheat in terms of keeping the streak alive to take something that's priced at minus 140. Mm. Um, I considered the under on rushing yards for Nick Chubb because the Steelers have a top rush defense, but it's a little dicey. Chubb breaks off one big one and I'm screwed. Uh, So here's where I've settled. James Washington who was college teammates with Mason Rudolph. They played together all four years, connected for 74 receptions and 15 touchdowns in college. The Steelers drafted them in back-to-back rounds in 2018, and they're starting to repeat their success in the pros. The last four games, Washington has averaged just shy of six targets a game, and in the last two, he really went off. Four catches for 69 yards against the Colts and six catches for 90 yards and a touchdown against the Rams. His line here is a mere 41 and a half yards on FanDuel. But then I kept looking. It's only 35 and a half yards on points bet. There is a slightly higher VIG, minus 114 instead of minus 110, but that's absolutely worth it for six free yards. So lock it in, $114 to win 100. James Washington over 35 and a half receiving yards. Wow. I'm not a Steelers fan, but I like that bet uh, for sure. That's really right. good. Um, first off, we stole that Seattle money. Uh, you know, we did. Pete, Pete Carroll punted on fourth and two at midfield with two minutes left at overtime and no timeouts left because he's really, really bad at math. Um, <laughs> the 49ers could have and arguably should have just run out the clock and moved to 8-0-1 versus Seattle 7-2-1, and Seahawks couldn't have stopped them. Um, and they probably would have won the division and had been uh, in the lead still uh, in the uh, number one seed race. But mm-hmm. Kyle Shanahan isn't uh, passing a Mensa test either, so uh, <laughs> yada, 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 we get a badly needed win. So um Secondly, I, I did mention last week that I like your picks a lot better than mine, so at least <laughs> right. I saw that coming. <laughs> and finally, I apologize for not only poor college football picks, but obscure poor college football picks. So from now on, I'm going to embarrass myself only with games that have a top 25 team or two. Okay. So uh, with that, here comes Michigan State getting 13.5 points at number 14 Michigan. Um, it's a rivalry game. Michigan struggles to blow people out. They don't have a monsoon to gain advantage like they did against Notre Dame. So uh, getting 13.5 in a rivalry game, I'm comfortable with. Okay, yeah, those are two college football programs I'm, I've heard of. Michigan State and Michigan, I'm familiar yeah, with them better. both. So and that's one ten to win 100. Yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, my next bet, uh, Monday Night Football is in Mexico City. Uh, the Chiefs are favored by three and a half points on a neutral field against the Chargers. The over-under is 52. I considered various ways to bet this, and what I landed on was over 27 and a half points scored for the Chiefs. Uh, Mahomes is more or less healthy. The Chargers are 26th in defensive DVOA. They're 26th against the run and 21st against the pass. I'm not sure if the game total will go go over. I'm not sure if the Chiefs will cover the spread. But I am confident that Kansas City, in kind of a must-win game after last week's disastrous loss to Tennessee, will put at least 28 points on the board. So let's bet 110 to win 100, Chiefs over 27 and a half. All right, sounds good. Again, um, now one loss Oklahoma, I'm giving nine and a half points at undefeated Baylor. Again, 110 to win 100 because I have no confidence in my picks anymore. But, um, <laughs> you know, the Sooners got a wake-up call surviving a good uh, Iowa State team last week, and Baylor's a paper tiger or paper bear or whatever. Yeah, they're, they're paper. <laughs> okay, a paper animal of some sort. <laughs> exactly. They're origami. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, we got to get your confidence back. I'm feel this. If I want you to go two and zero this week, nail these, and then uh, and then you'll start you'll start feeling yourself again. That's that's what if, I'm pulling if, for here. If I go zero and two again, I'm going back to bad golf tournaments. Which I, I was going to say. I, I vowed not to do, but you know, you gotta, <laughs> right? What you or, know is or or NFL or something. But yeah, yeah. I think another zero and two week means at yeah. least take a week off from college yes, football. Absolutely. 
All right, and we close things out with the Fast Five and what a difference a week makes. You've been in the lead all season, but the tide turned in a topsy-turvy Week 10 as I went 4-0-1 and you went 1-3-1, both of us settling for a push on opposite sides of that Browns-Bills game. Um, And I will say you definitely got unlucky on one count with the sudden status change of Matthew Stafford. You wouldn't have taken the Lions if you'd known he was hurt. Uh, Nevertheless... The results are what they are, and suddenly I'm in the lead by a half game. My oh. record is 26-21-3. Yours is 26-22-2. Both good records, by the way, right around where you need to be to make money. Uh, but it gets very interesting now, just about tied up with seven weeks to go, and you're up first this week. Yeah, I, I must say, making the picks as early as we do, I'm kind of uh, proud of us both being over because it's it's tough. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm stuck with the Lions, dead men walking. Um, you know, yep. some teams have a backup quarterback back and some teams don't and uh they don't yeah, um, that, so, that ended up being a ridiculously stale line i think it moved four points once the news came out so yeah you yeah. really got screwed there yeah so i enjoyed the four straight three and two weeks before that but now here i am in second place so here goes uh redskins minus one over the jets and yet another low scoring affair um jets had their signature win last week against the sibling pathetic giants um and for reasons that I can't explain, the Redskins' defense still really, really cares. Um, plus, they had just coming off a bye week. Um, Haskins is awful at quarterback, so that does scare me a little bit. But I'm sticking with the Redskins uh, in a bad game. Um, <laughs> Dolphins plus six versus the Bills. I, I checked with the Bills' entire schedule and looked for an impressive win, and I can't find one. I don't know that the Bills are better than the Dolphins. Um, Dolphins have covered five straight weeks, and people still don't get them, so good for them. The management doesn't want to win any games, and the players are just uh, basically very impudent, and they're playing really well. Um, Ravens minus four versus Texans. I'm buying in on Lamar Jackson. I think that spin move he had in that touchdown last week just oh, uh, yeah. won me over. I, I, I still can't believe it, so uh, that that might be not be a uh, uh, analytical pick, but I'm still – giving four with the Ravens um, Cardinals plus 11 at the 49ers uh, home team is banged up and the Cardinals are spunky. And unlike Lou Grant, I like spunk. Uh, finally, uh, Bengals plus 10 and a half at Raiders. I can't explain the Raiders, but I know which franchises can't stand prosperity and plus winless teams are annoying until they finally win one. And the Bengals are that team. All right. We have one pick in common and one game that we are going head to head on. Oh, um, like that. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm taking sides on some big spreads this week. Three of my five picks involve double-digit spreads. First, this is one that you didn't pick. Give me the Broncos plus 10.5 in Minnesota. The Vikings are very hit and miss. They're certainly the better team here, but will they win by more than 10 against a team with a good defense that's coming off a bye that's really only gotten blown out once this year? I don't think so. Um, Another double-digit road dog. I am with you on the Cardinals getting 11 points in San Francisco. Arizona is another team that usually keeps it close, even if that means a late rally to make it look closer than it is. Uh, they, They do that sometimes. They only lost by three against San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. I think they can cover 11 here. Uh, My third double-digit game, this is the one that we're going head-to-head on. I'm taking the home favorite, even though I don't love the number 10 and a half. Uh, Give me the Raiders to cover against a really inept, winless Bengals team. Uh, I wouldn't have imagined this at the start of the season, but the Raiders just might be a playoff team. Uh, Crazy. Uh, Okay, my next two are smaller spreads. Uh, I'll take the Panthers minus five and a half against Atlanta. I think the chasm in quality between these two teams is pretty big, and the Falcons are just getting an extra point or two because of the win over the Saints. But 
despite that I win, I, I think they're the same crappy team they've been most of the season. So I like the Panthers to cover. And lastly, I know I just said a few minutes ago that I wasn't super confident in the Chiefs Chargers spread as I was looking for a way to bet that game. But the more I look at it, I don't mind the hook. Three and a half points isn't quite enough for this game. I expect the Chiefs to win a little more comfortably than that on a neutral field. It's always risky to count on Andy Reid to not find a way to screw it up, but uh, I will take that chance here. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening, and thanks again to our guest, Blaine Grayboys. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan, and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling, and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, Eric, you know, uh, you probably know that Monday was Veterans Day, uh, which also was the day that. 70-year-old Army veteran Ernest Dodson of Greensboro, North Carolina, was informed that his $1 cash five lottery ticket had won a grand prize of $276,688 or $195,757 after taxes. Uh, Ernest reportedly said he would pay off his car and get a bigger TV so he could better watch his favorite wrestling matches. Uh, (laughs) Well, Eric, somebody has to win that money, so why not a veteran? Uh, And with that, until next time, gamble on, everybody.